this morning, Pastor Matt is going to be reading from Psalm chapter 5, and so um, you can follow on the screen as I read along. It's going to be um, the whole chapter of 5. Um, Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. You can be seated. I will ask at this point if the uh, deacons would come forward, and uh, we're going to pass out the offering basket. And if you have one of those yellow cards, please feel free to, to throw that in there. Um, and uh, we, didn't, we, we didn't tell you that. I didn't, didn't give you guys the uh, warning here up here, but thank you for doing that. And, and while we do that, it's the first thing when we pass around the offering basket. If you have a Bible, please take it and turn to Psalm 5, what Amy just so wonderfully read for us just a few minutes ago. Psalm 5, and I noticed something, Judson uh, my little boy had some friends over on Monday, and they were playing uh, video games, okay? And we have a, an, an old Xbox 360, and they were playing a Lego Jurassic Park game, okay? It was pretty cool. Uh, and, and this is not regular Jurassic Park, because, like, when they bite somebody, like, Legos fall apart. It's not, like, gruesome. I just want to be like, he lets his kids play Jurassic Park. He's a five-year-old. He's an idiot. Okay, but this is, it shoots out Lego pieces when they dinosaurs eat people, so it's okay. All right, so at least in my mind it is. So well, he was playing that, and I noticed something about him. Um, I'd ask him to do something, and he'd be like, uh-huh. And he'd just keep going, looking and staring at the screen. I'd be like, Judson, you want $100? He'd be like, sure. Uh-huh. Judson, you want to, you know, clean the toilets with your toothbrush? Uh-huh. I mean, that would be, he was totally zoning me out and not hearing me. And then I, and I, I got a little frustrated with it, and then I thought, hmm, where did he learn that behavior from? His dad. <laughs> and he would like, ask me to do something, and it would be like, sure, babe. And then later on, about a week later when I didn't do it, she'd be like, hey, didn't you say you'd do that? I'd be like, what are you talking about? I can't, no, when did you ask me that? Like, the other day, was I watching TV? Yeah. Oh, I, I wasn't listening. You ever been there, gentlemen? <laughs> Ladies, has your man ever been there? Yeah? Well, I want you to know something. God is not like that, thank God, okay? He is not like that. So here's, here's our one sentence you take with you today. If you're sitting at lunch after this and you're saying, what on earth was Psalm 5 about? I want to hear, here's what we need to take from this. So if you would listen, we have reason to rejoice because God hears us when we call out to him, and he in the right direction. 
We have reason to rejoice because when we when we call out to God, he's not deaf to us. It's not like he's playing Xbox and he's he's zoned out, okay? He is he hears us when we call him. We can be confident about that. When we call out to him, he hears us and he will lead us in the right direction. So that means we can have joy. We can rejoice in that. And if you look in Psalm 5, we have what we have here yet again. It's similar to Psalm 4. The same idea is that there's a calling out. David, the psalmist, he's calling out to God in prayer because there's something going on in his life. We don't exactly know what it is. And that's good because it can apply universally to any distress you might be in. And he calls out and he says, God, hear me. And he prays confidently that God will hear him. If you look in verse 1, it says this, give ear to my words. If you got your own Bible, I want you to go ahead and circle words. He says, give ear to my, Lord, to my words, O Lord. Consider my groanings. If you got your own Bible or you can have it on an app, highlight groanings, okay? The third thing he says here, says, give attention to the sound of my cry. If you have your own Bible or if you have an app, go ahead and circle sound of my cry, my King and my God, for you do I pray. He talks about three ways he utters here and three ways that God hears him. The first one we see is this. He says, God, give ear to my words, O Lord. Prayers consist of words most of the time. And he says, when I'm praying to you, Lord, would you just give attention to that? Would you, would you hear me? And this is, this is amazing, too, okay? His wor- he's believing that his words make it to the throne room of God. That his words make it past the ceiling. That his words make it to God. And here's what we know about God because he's revealed it to us. He hears the prayers of his people. He hears our words. Now, obviously, we have to go through, we pray through Christ, by the Holy Spirit. We can't, we, we can't pray otherwise, but he hears our words. He hears our words. But not only does, does he hear our words, but he hears our groanings. Look at this in verse 1. It says, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groanings. I went to camp with Mitch and all of our youth, and we played basketball every day at free time because like we didn't have enough punishment okay so we went and we played basketball the last day and the reason I did that was so that I would not take a nap because I knew if I take a nap I'm going to be like a zombie I don't know if any of you do that naps are like the worst thing I could ever do I never come back from I barely wake up in the morning I am an ogre in the morning it takes several cups of coffee and about an hour of don't talk to me before I can like function as a human being okay and so if I take a nap, I'm just worse than ever. So I didn't take a nap. We played basketball, and I was doing pretty well until the last day of camp, and I was ready to get out of bed. And my body said, or my, my mind said, get out of bed. My legs said, <laughs> you're kidding. No. I was like, ah! <sighs> I know I had let out a groan when I had to get out. Ugh. A groan, a murmur, a sigh. That is the thing. He, he starts out with words. He says, give attention to my words, O Lord. Hear my groanings, murmuring, sighing. The Lord, he is asking the Lord to hear that which he cannot utter. That which are just noises. That which he cannot verbalize. That is the, how intimately our God knows us. Is that not he? He doesn't just hear our words, but he can hear our groans. There's sometimes there is a burden too big for you to bear, 
And sometimes the only thing you can get out is help. Sometimes the only thing you can get out is ugh. And he is asking the Lord with confidence, God, would you hear my groanings? Would you hear my sighs? Would you hear the things I cannot utter? He's, it's a thoroughgoing hearing. I believe that my mom had super hearing when I was a little kid because she could hear my eyes roll. It's not like I was dehydrated or anything, but you know that? You're like, she tells you to do something, go clean your room. And I had my back turned, I'm down the hallway. She's like, don't roll your eyes at me. And I'm like, how did she know? I'm like, am I walking in a way that <laughs> would indicate my eyes are rolling back? No. See, she knew me. She knew my heart, and so she knew what was happening. The Lord, how much more does he know his people? And David is confident that God not only hears his words that he prays, but he hears his words that he can't get out. He's feeling thoroughly heard and needing that. Finally, it says in verse 2, it says, Give attention to the sound of my cry. We've gone from words to murmurs to the sound of lament and crying. This could be used of any number of things, this idea of the sound of my cry. It's, it has the idea of, 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 of letting out a, 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 a noise of pain. Sometimes all you can do is just cry out to the Lord, like, help, or sometimes just, ugh, you may have lost that loved one, you may have hit a wall that you can't overcome, and we don't know the situation that David's in, but obviously it's one of distress, that he needs God to hear him, hear my words, hear my murmuring, hear my pain. It goes from things that are articulated, ideas articulated through our words, to murmurs and groans, to crying in pain. The Lord is not deaf to any of those things. And he prays them in confidence because he knows something about the Lord. He says in verse 2, Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for, do, for to, to you do I pray. He goes to the one who is the King, who is God, who can answer the prayers. How many of us love to do this? We love to talk to people more about our problems than we like to bring them to someone who could do anything about them. Complaining sometimes happens, right? That's why you like it at the stores where they have the suggestion box, which might as well be complaints, okay? At the end of a restaurant meal, they're even putting them now on the little kiosk you get where you can complain <laughs> digitally immediately to whoever you want to. And it's seen by someone in corporate, and you can have that satisfaction of saying, I complained or told you how great it was immediately. The internet has provided that for us. We have instant ways to complain, instant ways to say, I am offended by that, instant ways to do this or that. But oftentimes, our complaints go, because there's so many of them now, they just go deaf. People don't listen to them. They're not heard. And if they are heard, usually they're heard by a middle-level manager who does nothing with them. I know I'm busting some of your bubbles because some of you, the, the last time you went to Chili's and you gave your waiter the business, okay? You know, last time it happened, it didn't go anywhere. It went to middle management, Chili guy who's like, oh, mm, yeah, delete, okay? Oftentimes we give our complaints to people who can't do anything about it. I complain about people's driving to my wife. 
Do you know how much power she has over other people's driving? It would be awesome if she had all the power. Be like, no, okay? She has none of it. The complaints can come out. He prays to someone who can, my God and my king, for to you I pray. He is praying to God, the king. And so he is hurt. When this is just, uh, just amazing. He's heard in all these ways. He's thoroughly heard. The people of God are thoroughly heard by their God. He thoroughly hears us. And he's the one that can do something about it. For my God and my king, for to you I pray. And then in verse 3, we see the confidence yet come yet again. He says, oh, Lord, in the morning do, I hear, do you hear my voice? And then he says this, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you, and I watch. So thoroughly heard. God hears our words. He hears the murmurings. He hears the cries, the things we cannot, we cannot articulate. He hears them. He knows them. We pray into him. The one giving our complaints to the one who can help us. And here's a call here. If you look at the Psalms, they just continually call us to be awakened to God's presence and awakened to talking to him and realize and praying in such a way that we're not praying to the ceiling. We are lifting our words to heaven, believing that our God hears us. In whatever form that, that prayer takes, whether it's the, oh, I don't know what to do, the murmur, the sigh, the words, the cry out, God, I'm in so much pain and trouble. Help me. He hears. Confidently, David comes. And then he says, this, this coming involves preparation and watchfulness. Preparation and watchfulness. We look in verse 3. He says, oh, Lord, in the morning do you hear my voice? This is especially, there's some of you, when you think about the morning, you, th- you view life like you're in a Disney princess cartoon. And what I mean by that is you wake up and it's like, oh, oh, open the windows up, the animated birds fly in on you, and you're just, oh, how great it is. This coffee and love, and I'm up before everyone else. It's amazing. And others of you are like me. You'd be like, morning is the worst, okay? I mean, you're like, let the bodies hit the floor. I mean, that is, that's where you are. Like, I do not like this one bit. Don't talk to me. Don't touch me. Don't look at me. I need some, I need some space. There is this thing that you see in the scriptures a lot, especially in the Psalms, in which the psalmist wakes up, and the first thing that he does, at least as part of his morning routine, is coming before the Lord. I think that's a a fine thing to do and something to be something to strive for but whether you're a morning person evening person there should be a time of preparation in which you come before god in prayer and praise and verse three says oh lord in the morning you hear my voice so he set this time apart it's the morning time that's so many people do that that has been a it's a that's a a thing theme in scripture is waking up in the morning and being spending time with God and we see it going on it says in the morning I prepare a sacrifice now the words a sacrifice are actually not in the Hebrew text and so there's this idea of making a making preparation we prepare for a lot of things you prepare for meals you prepare to go on vacation 
you have practice before sports, and so many of you know that from previous times, or now your kids are involved in sports, and you know there's practice that leads to the game. There's preparation there. Even before practice, you have to make sure everything's together. Before a game can be played at the, at the ball fields or wherever, everybody has to do prepare by getting the uniforms right, getting the teams all put together. We prepare for so many different things. We prepare for this. We prepare for that. We prepare for vacation. We prepare for upcoming expenses. We prepare for this. But I want just to, just to to pose this question to you, are you preparing for the things that actually matter? Because preparation here is, a lot of us feel like in all other areas of our life, we got to work and prepare to get ready to achieve things. That's what we do. But when it comes to the Christian life, we're like, nah, Jesus is going to like one day make me holy. I was going to wake up and just be. And eventually, if you wait till the end where he comes back, okay, or you die and are glorified, then that will happen, okay? But you're not called to just stay where you are right now and just wait on it to happen. There is some preparation that goes into holiness and into prayer. And so here's, here's, here's the thought here that the psalmist, whether he's preparing a sacrifice, going to the temple, which would involve getting wood, Okay, putting it together and getting the animal and getting ready for all these things to happen for his sins to be covered. That could be the idea. That's why they kind of jump to a conclusion here in this translation where it says prepare a sacrifice. Or it could be he just prepares his prayers or he prepares to pray. <laughs> prayer is one of those things, unless we prepare to do it, we will not do it. If, if you don't believe me, try to pray right before you go into bed. What does that usually turn into? Lord, God, here, I'm here to pray. All of a sudden, <sighs> try, to, try to pray in a really noisy area. Try to go pray. Have you, have you ever been to one of these bounce houses before? You ever seen one of those? It's like the close. I don't believe in purgatory because it's not in the Bible, but bounce houses might be that, okay, <laughs> for parents or, you know, Chuck E. Cheese or something. I have fun, but try go try to pray in one of those things. Like, woo, tokens! I got tokens! Okay? Go try to pray there. Okay, I'm gonna go, you can pray wherever. Yes, you should have attitude of prayer. Prayer that ceases in the Bible. However, try to do these things without preparation, and it just will not happen. There's a preparation that has to go into prayer and into holiness. Well, how come in every other area of our life we think we, can, we have to prepare and get ready for it, but when it, comes to just, when it comes to believing and it comes to our walk in faith, we think it's just going to happen? The Lord will... It's, it's his work in us, but we're called to participate in it and participate in our spiritual lives, and you will not grow unless you put forth preparation and effort. And the psalmist says, I come to you in the morning and I pray. He set aside a time. That could be the part of the preparation. The second thing he does is I prepare. Whether he prepares the words or he's preparing a sacrifice, whatever he's doing, he is making the proper steps in order to pray. That may be for you to get a Bible, uh, Bible translation that you understand. Some of you have Bible translations that you do not understand. Okay, it's not because it's difficult, it's because they're just using antiquated language or language that's too high for you. And maybe you just need to also maybe invest in a good study Bible because you maybe don't know as much as you should and, and you might be afraid to ask questions. Don't ever be afraid to ask questions, but you might be afraid to ask some questions and there are, uh, there's resources available for you. So that may look like I need to find something that help me prepare to pray, help me prepare to worship. I may need to get a Bible that helps me understand it better. 
to find one that has some notes in it, some a good one. If you have, if you need questions about that, you can come and talk to one of the elders, or even some of our deacons will point you to that 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 direction. And so there's a preparation involved. Not only a preparation, there's an expectation involved. In verse three, it says this: "Lord, you hear me. I pray to you in the morning, for you're not a." It says in verse four: "Oh Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you, and I watch." This word here is used in several other psalms about the watchman waiting for the morning. What is a watchman? It's somebody who is set up on the temple, and they're kind of a guard, a centurion, if you will. There's somebody who was keeping an eye out for invaders or people who would do harm to a city. And so they would sit and wait at night. And I imagine... Because they see it in the scriptures that the watchmen are waiting for the morning. You were waiting for that time. You're waiting for getting off time. There was an anticipation that the morning was coming. And there's an anticipation here. God, I, I come in the morning to pray. I prepare. And I'm watchful. I expect you to answer me. There's an expectation. How, why is it that we sometimes we function like atheists? We throw up prayers. We feel like they're long bombs. They're the Hail Marys at the end of the game. I've tried everything else. Let me throw some prayer in this situation. Go deep. <sighs> okay? And so you're just throwing these lofty prayers up here that, that you don't really believe that they're going to be answered. But you're just throwing them up there because you've lost hope in other things. And here's the good thing. The, the prayer that the Bible, the prayer that Bible calls us to is prayer believing that God will answer his people. Seek and knock. Ask and receive. He's a good father. Would a good father, if his son asks for bread, give him a rock? No. Would a good father, if his, if his son asks for fish, would he give him a serpent? Absolutely not. The words of Jesus. Coming, preparing for watchfulness. And so here is where the psalmist begins, and we need to understand this and get a part of this and understand this as, as part of our lives and the way we interact with God because the psalms help us know how we can interact with God. Is he hears us. Here's our words, here's our groanings, here are our murmurings. We can be confident that he hears us, and not just confident, but we need to pray with pre preparing for prayer and being watchful that he will answer. And then, just like all of us in, in, in prayer, and that's, that's one of the reasons I love the Psalms. The Psalms have such a human element to them, even though they're inspired by God. And so here's what you have here. He's got him, God hear me, and then he talks about wicked people. There's this kind of, he goes back and forth between subjects. And you've ever done that before? Come talk to me, have a conversation with me. We'll talk about 20 different things in five minutes. I have a problem, okay? And I'll see this, we've mentioned that, and I'm going to tell you about this, and da-da-da-da-da. And that's, that's just, I love the psalmist because he just, it's interwoven in this thing. God, hear me. Hear me in my distress. Hear my groanings. Hear my cries. God, I come in the morning, I prepare to pray, and I'm watching, I believe you'll answer. But let me talk about the wicked people. In verse 4, he starts talking about wickedness. He says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness, which lawlessness, those who break God's law. God, you don't delight in those who break the law. You don't delight in evil people. He goes on and he says, evil may not dwell with you. This is in keeping with the theology we've seen on a lot of the Psalms where we see this one, that who can, who can stand, on, who can go to the hill of the Lord and who can dwell in his holy place? Only he that has clean hands and a pure heart. So to be in God's presence, you must be perfectly pure. Fits with the idea of holiness in the Bible. It fits with the idea of Levitical priests that they had to be separate and they had to be enabled to go to God and make sacrifice. They had to be completely cleansed. And he says, Lord, 
You, you don't delight in wickedness and lawlessness, people who break the law. God, evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. That's some strong language. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. So what we have here is he talks about several different types of people and several different types of sin. Look in verse 4. He says, you del- the, we talk about people who delight in wickedness. They delight to do wrong. He goes on and talks about that evil will not dwell with him. In verse 5 it says, the boastful, those who are arrogant, those who are prideful. What does it say about them? They shall not stand before your eyes. God can't stand to look at them. You hate all evildoers. If you work evil, God hates that. Verse 6, you destroy those who speak lies. God just not just hate when you outwardly act. He also hates when you lie, which is an explanation, which is, shows what's in your heart. He hates deceit. And he goes on, he says, The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. Woo! God hates sin. And his divine hatred, which is a holy hatred, which is hard for us to understand, is against all sin. This is not popular, but this is true. And I want to give you a difference between holy hatred and man's hatred. Because immediately when we think of hatred, that God has hatred towards sin, we think of, we project upon God our hatred. Let me give you an example from my driving. And I know you could tell this is an actual part in my life that I need sanctification. Pray for your pastor, okay? So here's the thing. I was in Gallatin, and I was, I was in front of two people who were driving so slow, like unbelievably slow. And I'm trying to get over because I see this dude in a truck who is not driving slow, and he's about to run into us, and I got to get over to the left, turn in to the place I'm going, okay? And so I, I, I hit the brakes a little bit and go over. Well, the guy who was in the truck trying to go around me thinks I'm the slow guy. And he looks at me and drives by, and he's like going, like that, I did not appreciate that. And that tingle of anger began to burn, okay, where the spine meets the skull. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I'm going to hurt that kid. He's 18 years old. I want to hurt him, okay? So I decided not to hurt him, okay? And then, but when I did drive past him later on, I decided to return the look, but even do it worse, I was like, uh, uh. not saying this is right. This is an example of what's not right. You should see him and his friend were like, what is this guy? You know, a 30-year-old guy going, uh. I'm thankful none of you saw that. If you did, <laughs> you need to pray for me, okay? I became angry, something that wasn't really a big deal. I responded in a way that was really stupid. And that's how we think that anger is. It's just something that he finally had it. Had it up to here. He's going to act out in anger. That is not God. He is holy in his justice and his anger and his hatred. It is not like ours. And I want you to know something. His anger is against all sin, and he deals with people justly because of their sin. Sin cannot stand before him. That's the holy, holy, holy we've seen. 
He is perfect. He cannot look upon sin. His anger is not, it doesn't just happen on a whim. It's not just because he, he just gets, gets put out or it, he just gets really agitated with the situation. His anger is patient. It is holy, but it is against all unrighteousness. So we can believe that God hears us, okay? Hears us in all our ways. And we can believe not only that he hears us, but that he leads us in the right direction. And one of the reasons we can know that he leads us in the right direction, he will lead us in the right direction, is he hates all sin. God will not lead you to a place that is full of sin. So if you're in this place where God told me to do this, and the this is sin, he did not tell you to do that. Okay? He did not tell you to do that. But I felt like, ooh, big whoop. Okay? That, good for you. I'm glad you feel that. But God won't lead anybody towards evil. That's why we can trust him. Now, it should scare us that he deals so strongly with evil. We can trust God. He leads us right direction. Why? He hears us and he leads us to right direction. Why? Because he hates sin. It won't lead us towards that. And then what he, does the psalmist say? Then he goes on in verse 7. After he talks about wickedness, he goes back to talking about righteousness. In verse 7, he says this, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Who... Who can go before God? Can anybody who's boastful? Can any sinner go before God? Can anybody who broke the law go before God? Can anybody who is sinful go before God? The answer we just looked at and we've seen in the scripture is no. No sin can come before him, but the psalmist can come. Why? Is it because he hasn't sinned? Well, if you know anything about this, the life of David, and this is a psalm of David, David sinned a lot. He saw a girl bathing on the roof, wasn't his wife. Wasn't where he's supposed to be, and he, her name was Bathsheba, okay? Which, you ever thought about that? Taking a bath, Bathsheba, that's just funny, okay? And he was like, dang, come on over, hottie, okay? He brings her over, he sins with her, then he gets in trouble, okay? This is the Matt Brown international version of the story of David, by the way. He sees her, brings her over, he, li he, he lies with her in the biblical sense, okay? What happens? A child is produced, they, and, and what does he try to do? He tries to get out of it by, eventually, he kills her husband. It's pretty bad. Remember we talked about setting the bar low? Well, I've never killed anybody. <laughs> That's like the lowest bar ever, okay? You ever notice that? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just down here. Well, I've never killed anybody. Well, you're setting the bar pretty low, man. This guy did. How can he come? He's confident that he will come before the presence of God. How? Well, the answer is in verse 7, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love. It's a Hebrew word, hesed, here, that steadfast love, which means his covenant love. The love that is the fact that he has provided a way for sinful people to come to him. See, I want you to know something. Nobody has ever been saved by works, not even in the Old Testament. It was by faith in God and his ways for covering sin. And ultimately, in the Old Testament, all the ways for covering sin were pointing to the one who absolutely covered sin and took it away once and for all, Jesus. And so when he's saying, by your steadfast love, it's his covenant love. It's, God, you have made a way for me to be forgiven. 
It's David in Psalm 51. He says, you don't delight in sacrifice, for I bring it. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you do not despise. You won't turn it away. And so what do we have here? Is we have grace. Why can we be, why can we be confident that God lead, will lead us in the right direction? Because he will never lead us towards sin because he hates sin. Secondly, he gives grace. Not only that, he desires to lead his people towards life. If you look in verse 8, David says, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Take, make your way straight before me. So what does he do? Not only does he recognize that he can only come before God through the grace of God. Ultimately, now as we believers, we see it through Jesus, okay? He also prays, Lead me, God. Lead me. Make my path straight. They're my enemies, and, and you can also see this, and we're going to see this in a moment. There's a tug towards sin always in the life of a believer. There's a tug towards sin, and he's not even indwelt with the Holy Spirit because we are the ones indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and we still have that tug. Imagine how the tug was there for him. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit, but he, didn't, was, not, he was not indwelt by the Holy Spirit like we are. So there's this pull towards sin there, and he says, God, lead me, lead me to your righteousness, what does it say? It says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Lead me towards truth. Lead me towards righteousness. How do we know God will lead us towards righteousness? Because he hates sin and he's always right. Then it goes on to say, because of my enemies, make your way straight before me, God. Lead me in a straight path. It's the idea, this idea of leading, making a path straight. You guys, met, most of you have met my little boy. He's hyper. When we get out of the car... The first thing I do, and I'm a little bit overprotective about this, I hold somebody's hand, especially when we're going through the parking lot. Because I don't know what it is. When people like parking lot, they're like, let's drive 100 miles an hour. This is my last chance to drive before I park my car. I've got to make sure I go fast. Okay? See how fast I can do this. I'm also going to close my eyes. Ah! I mean, have you ever been like that? Go to Walmart. Go over to Foodland. Lord have mercy. Nobody like looks at anything. I'm driving here in the parking lot. So I have this fear of like him running out in the traffic. Okay, I guess it's probably well founded. Okay, and so grab a hand. And what we do? I lead him in the right path, which is not getting hit by a car. That is the idea here. Lord, lead me towards righteousness. Make my path straight. Keep it from danger. And there's an acknowledgement. Remember, we talked about, he talks about hear me. He talks about sin. He talks about leading me and God's loving kindness. And then he talks about sin again. Remember, he's going back and forth between these ideas. And we see in verse 9, he says this, for there is no truth in their mouths. He's going back to talk about those who are sinful, the boasters. He says, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. That's not a good description. Don't use this poetry for your wives, gentlemen. Oh, babe, there's no truth in your mouth. Mm. Your inmost self is destruction. Your throat is like an open grave. Oh, <laughs> you flatter with your tongue. Don't use that. Okay, probably don't even want to use Song of Songs, okay, because you're like, your, your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Gilead. That won't get you anywhere either, okay? It's just FYI, freebie. 
well, there's a talk about wicked people. Not only can God not stand it, but that wickedness, it comes from the inside to the outside and through our speech, which is, again, something to, to, to think about that our speech reflects what's on the inside. That's tough. And he, and he talks about how the wicked, that their speech shows their inward life and that they're bankrupt morally because of sin. And Paul, in talking about the universality of sin, the fact that every person is broken and bent towards sin and every person doesn't seek after righteousness but seeks after sin, he does this in Romans 2. He quotes this verse. And he talks about sinfulness. And Paul's point in Romans chapter 2 is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Gentiles, those who did not have the Old Testament law, and the Jews all have sinned. That's his point. And so David, in writing this, he is talking about wicked people, but I know something, and, and, and this is, you can guess this quite easily, that he is a man who struggled with sin himself. And there is a little bit of uh, seeing himself in the eyes of a sinner. He knows these to be true, not only because he's seen it in other people, because he's seen it in himself. He's seen that universal bent towards sin. He's seen the fact that his default settings are not towards good. His default settings are towards sin. And that his mouth is like an open grave. And if you think about it, he's in the Middle East. This is uh, an open grave is a stank like no other, especially in the Middle East with not our modern embalming techniques and all the things we have, an open grave was a stench like no other. And oftentimes, we don't, we get upset or find it difficult to talk about the anger of God is because we see ourselves as pretty good. The Bible does not see us as pretty good. It tells us who we are. Now, we're made in the image of God. Gloriously, we have worth because we are made in his image, every person. However, every person has been horribly marred and destroyed by sin. It's a thoroughly pervasive thing. And there's only one way for that to be cleansed and for us to have a new righteousness, and that is through Christ. Paul's point in Romans 2 when he quotes this is that everybody's sin, our hearts, our mouth, show what's in our hearts, and we are thoroughly wicked. Wickedness is a part of us. However, there is one who has redeemed us with loving kindness and will lead us towards righteousness. We can trust him. You know why? Because he hates sin, and he is full of grace, and sin is so thoroughly pervasive in us that he will judge it, but there is hope. And verse 10 tells us something very uncomfortable. But I want you to see the grace in it. Verse 10 says, Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. The psalmist basically says, God, let every person who has sinned get what's coming to them. Now, part of us that makes us uncomfortable with that and a part of us that feels part of that that makes us feel familiar with it first off let's say this have you ever been in that situation where somebody has really done you or someone you love wrong you ever been there how do you feel about that what's your first inclination is it they go god bless them 
cause their bank account to increase. God, make, make their life more pleasing and perfect. God, just let them have a better car. Let them have more joy. No, what are you praying? Destroy them. Let a car fall upon them. Let them die like a Looney Tunes cartoon. Let an anvil from Acme hit them and squash them. That's our natural inclination. And sometimes it's right because you've been done really wrong and you want judgment to come. However, what makes some, so we've been there, right? However, there's this other side of it that can see ourselves in that position. We can see our own sin, and we don't want that to happen to us if we were to make that same mistake that person has done. So I want you to get this. The proclamations of judgment in the Bible point us, are supposed to scare us and point us to the fact that we need to turn, repent, and believe God for the remission of sins. Jonah, for example. You guys know the book of Jonah? Go to Nineveh. What are you supposed to do? Pronounce judgment. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. He ran away. At the end, what does he do? After the the fish and the, the getting thrown up on the beach and all that kind of stuff, what happens? He goes and he preaches against Nineveh, and then he pouts. You know why I'm pouting, God? Because I came to preach judgment against these people, and they were pretty bad. They skinned people alive. The Ninevites were not, like, good people, okay? They were really bad, all right? And he's like, God, I can't believe that you would let them repent. Did his message contain repent in it? It was implied. I want you to know this. The judgment passages of Scripture are meant to scare you and to scare those who are lost with the reality of judgment so that they might turn and believe. Great, a great, the, one of the greatest pastors in the, who's ever lived, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, commenting on this verse, says this. The psalmist here speaks as a judge, as God's mouth. The most shameful way of cursing another is by pretending to bless him. You hear that? Saying everything okay is okay when it's not, especially when it comes to sin. It's cursing the other person when you're thinking you're blessing them. Then he goes on to say, David's words are intended to be a blessing by warning the sinner of the impending curse. We preach the judgment of God so that people will not fall underneath the judgment of God, but repent and believe. You hear me? I want you to know this. There are many who preach just the good news. And the good news is really not that good if you're good. Right? And there are many who just preach the bad news. You're a sinner! They got big picket signs, and they got megaphones, and they tell you everybody's going to hell. And I would, in some, some degree, I would agree, everybody is, apart from the good news. So if you just preach the bad news, you're not a gospel person. And if you just preach the good news, you're not a gospel person either. The gospel people believe the bad news shows us how great the good news is. And the bad news is this. Every person, everywhere, is under the condemnation of God. Not because of anything else but the sin that they have committed. But God, being rich in mercy, has provided a way out. 
So in David talking about the justice, justice should be done by God. But this call of this call to it's really this call of judgment is a call to repentance to turn and to know the steadfast love of the Lord. There's kind of this sentiment that's going around in Christianity in, in, in regards to evangelism that can be destructive, okay? It's not wrong, but it can be destructive. And a lot of it has to do with most of the time our evangelistic efforts go, are you broken? Have you, has your life lost all meaning and purpose? Have you come to that place where you hit rock bottom? And you're looking for more purpose in your life. You're looking for abundant life. Then come to Jesus. Now, those things are true. And the gospel is a message for the broken. But not every person who, who, class of, who, not every person who is a sinner and does not follow God follows under, falls under that broken category. There's a lot of people who are very sinful and who are very far away from God that are completely fine with it. So what's our message to them? Come, broken people. Like, I'm good. I'm going to take my Range Rover and go on vacation and have a lot of fun sinning, okay? I'm not broken, dude. I'm fine, okay? We're calling out, come, broken people, and broken people should come. But not everybody's broken, but everybody is an enemy of God apart from the salvation in Jesus Christ. And our major message is this. Not just for the broken, but for everybody. Your sin makes you an enemy of God. But God bridged the gap through Christ. And now you can have peace with God. And that is the message here. And then finally, after all of these big things, where do we go? Rejoicing. In verses 11 and 12, it says, Let all who take refuge in you, Rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. For those who love your name exalt in you. For you bless, the, you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as a shield. And so it goes from talking about sin and talking about leading me and hearing me to this place where he gets to a place of rejoicing because the Lord is a refuge. We were out at camp um, this summer doing water day, okay, which was kind of funny. And it came a monsoon on top of that mountain we were on. It rained so hard. And I was loving it because I'm like, well, it's water day anyway. But it was getting so wet. It was almost flash flood stage. We were got about two inches of water on this field. And so what do they say? Everybody, run into the gym. So we ran into the gym to refuge from the storm. Isn't it interesting? shows yet again that David not only sympathizes with the sinner, but recognizes his need of refuge which is part and parcel with that. Refuge, what is that? Is that that place of safety? Think about refugees. They're running from a war-torn, devastating country where people want to kill them. They are running for refuge in another place, a place of safety. He says, rejoice. And he says this, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice, God, because you hear them and you will lead us. Let those who have come to Christ, let those who have come to God by faith, let them rejoice because he is a refuge. Then it says them, let them sing for joy 
and spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may exalt in you. The idea of protection here, we see it in the Psalms and other places. It's, like, it's, it's God being a bird and putting his wing over his children. Take refuge. And then it goes, for you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. And so I want us to see this very, very clearly. That the fact is that because God hears us and because he will lead us in the right direction, when we call to him, he will be our refuge. He will be our shield. Refuge from sin's penalty and refuge from sin's draw. This one of the songwriters in the song we sing here says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. David recognizes that sin is there. That's why he asked God to lead him. David recognizes the penalty of sin, which is death. He recognizes that drawback to sin. And he prays God, lead him in straight ways, and God will lead. He also prays that, God, I would find joy in these struggles when I feel that pull to sin because you are a shield for me. Some of you need to run back to the shield. Some of you are so beaten down by life and beaten down by what's happening, you need to run to that refuge and find joy. Some of you need to run back to that protection. You have, you have strayed, but come back. These, these things, these judgments we've talked about are warnings for you to come back and come to the refuge who is God and rejoice. Come to the refuge. Come to the shield. Come to the protection. Turn. Come. Let's pray. Father, as we get ready to, in a few minutes to take communion, let us remember that the full refuge of our souls is in Jesus, and we find all our hope in Christ. So as we come and we look at these elements, God, we pray that we would turn from sin and trust you and let this symbol of trust be an act of worship. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.